W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Moss Nissan. Whatever it takes. Up next is Verse by Verse. Sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. So, what kind of a church was the church at Philadelphia? It was a missionary church. It was a church that was available to reach out in Christ's name. It really was the original church of the open door that God had given them, and they went through that door. So we want to understand this church. This is Verse by Verse. In today's class, Pastor Steve Kreloff begins a two-part study of the Church of Philadelphia from Revelation chapter 3. At the end of the class, I will tell you how you can listen to this study again on our website, versebyverseradio.org. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so let's get right to class. Here is Pastor Steve. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and I want to read to you starting at verse 7. This is the message to the church at Philadelphia, the one in the ancient world, not in Pennsylvania. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David... Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I'll make them to come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Twenty-five miles southeast of the village of Sardis, on a high plateau of about 800 feet in the air stood the ancient city of Philadelphia. At the time of the book of Revelation, it was a relatively new city. Remember, Revelation is written about 90 AD. Philadelphia was founded about 140 BC by Attellus II, who was king of Pergamum. Now, Attellus II loved his brother dearly. He adored his brother so much that he acquired a nickname. This king acquired a nickname, Philadelphos, which means one who loves his brother. And so the city was named after this king. It was a, a nickname. Philadelphia was one which spoke of the love of the brethren or the city of brotherly love, named after this king because he loved his brother so much. Now, the city was founded for a deliberate purpose. Some cities just sort of spring up, not this city. It was founded for a deliberate purpose. And its background, and the reason I'm covering this, is the background of the city helps us to understand the letter 
that Jesus wrote to the church that was in this city. Now, the city was erected where a main highway ran. It connected three major areas of Asia Minor. It was also located in a strategic area on the main route of the Imperial Road from Rome to the east. In fact, Philadelphia was called Gateway to the East. Now, because of its strategic location, which connected so many areas in the ancient world, it was founded, note this, for the sole purpose of being a missionary city of Greek culture. It had an open door to the rest of the world to propagate Greek thinking, Greek ideas that went beyond lands. The goal was to spread Greek thinking and culture and language to other cities in the East. But while it had a strategic missionary location, its location became a major problem for the city because the area was prone to earthquakes. Now, keep all this in mind. There were constant earthquakes going on in and around Philadelphia so that the people of this city were constantly having to flee the city so they wouldn't get crushed by falling stones from the buildings. It was a very unstable and a very insecure feeling to live in Philadelphia. In fact, in 17 BC, a major earthquake destroyed Philadelphia, as well as Sardis and and 10 other cities. But Tiberius Caesar rebuilt Philadelphia, and in gratitude to him, to Tiberius Caesar, the city changed its name to Neo Caesarea, the new city of Caesar. But later, keep this in mind, later it reverted back to its old name, Philadelphia, and the people of Philadelphia understood what it meant to receive a new name. Now, what does all this ancient history about Philadelphia have to do with the book of Revelation and Christ's letter to the church? See, in writing this letter, Jesus expresses himself in language that relates to the history of this city. But he applies these truths, these spiritual truths, to getting the gospel out and where they were spiritually. For the church in that city, they understood exactly what he was talking about because it was so tied into the culture and the history of their city. But for example, let me explain. Verse 8, notice verse 8. He says, Jesus said, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Now, he speaks here of an open door to reach the regions beyond with the gospel. The people of Philadelphia understood what an open door was. An open door was to reach beyond their city, at least this was the secular point of view, with Greek culture and language. Jesus said, I'm giving you an open door not to reach the world with Greek culture, but with the gospel. Secondly, the city had a history, as I said, of instability and falling stones from the various earthquakes and buildings that uh, were affected. The church, therefore, is promised stability. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar. A pillar speaks of stability in the temple of my God. Promised stability and security was unknown to them, but they understood. Also, the city was given a new name, Neo Caesarea. So the church would easily grasp the fact that God has given them a new name, which is what verse 12 goes on to speak of about I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So they understood what it was like to get a name change, to have a new name. 
Now, you and I need to understand something of the historical background if we're really to understand the depth and meaning of this letter, but we dare not reduce this information to simply a historical lesson because we need to learn from the church of Philadelphia. In fact, we need to learn a lot from them because they were a great church. Of all the seven churches in Asia Minor that Jesus wrote to, there are seven of them, this was probably the greatest of all the churches. There are no rebukes that Jesus gives to this church, only positive things. In fact, historically, this was the last of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 to fall to the Turks, and it fell at a very late date. It fell in the 14th century. So what kind of a church was the church at Philadelphia? It was a missionary church. It was a church that was available to reach out in Christ's name. It really was the original church of the open door that God had given them, and they went through that door. So we want to understand this church. Now, the outline just is very simple. It's very similar to what we've been studying in all the other churches. It follows the pattern of all the other letters. So let's, let's begin. First of all, we see the correspondent to the church. Who, who wrote this letter? Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now, the way that Christ, and he obviously is the author, the correspondent of this letter, the way that Christ identifies himself to this church is different. It's different than what we've seen in any of the other letters. As you'll recall, all the other letters, Jesus refers to himself in terminology of the vision that was given in chapter 1 of him as the glorified, all-powerful Christ, as the judge. But that's not the case here. It's not the case here. In all the other letters, he is the righteous judge, but not here because there was nothing to really judge here. They really didn't have a, a, an outstanding sin problem, and judgment wasn't necessary. So this church wasn't in need of, of judgment. Therefore, there is a unique threefold description of Jesus Christ. We haven't seen this anywhere else in these letters. Number one, he says, he who is holy. He identifies himself as the holy one. The basic meaning of holy, we use this word a lot, but the basic meaning is to be different, to be distinct, to be separate from. God is holy because he is different and separate from his creatures who are not holy. Holiness is a unique characteristic of God. Peter said in, in 1 Peter 1.15, quoting from the Old Testament, be ye holy, for I'm holy. God is uniquely holy. In fact, in Exodus 15.11, God said it is his holiness that sets him apart from all the other false gods, all the other idols. They're not holy. He is holy. So what Jesus is saying here is that essentially he's saying that he's God. He is the same God as the Old Testament God. That's significant. He's holy. Sets him apart, his holiness, from all the false deities that were running around, especially in Old Testament times. Secondly, he, Jesus identifies himself as the one who is true. He who is holy, who is true. That is to say, he's genuine. He's real. He's not a fake. He's not fraudulent. In other words, he is the true one, the true God, not an imposter, not a deceiver. Now, 
Let me just take you to 1 John chapter 5. This is very similar to what John was saying as he closed his letter. Remember, John wrote 1 John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. John said as he closed his first letter, chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourself from falling into believing in these idols when you know that Jesus Christ is true. Jesus Christ is true. Jesus Christ is God. So he is holy. He is God. He is true. He is the true God. He is not a fake. Number three, threefold description who has the key of David. Now, what does that mean, the key of David? This phrase, the key of David, is used one other time in the Bible. It's used in Isaiah 22, verse 22. And the background of Isaiah 22, you don't even need to go there. It's just an expression that the key of David is given to someone. But the background of Isaiah 22 is that a man by the name of Elikim was given the key of the house of David. That's what it says. He is to have the key of the house of David. He was given the king's key. That is to say, the key to the king's royal treasures. He was the only one, this man in the Old Testament, who could open and close the king's treasury. What that means is this man, Elikim, had authority. Whoever has a key to open a door has authority. So the thought here is authority. The key is symbolic of authority. And now Jesus said, it's he who has this authority to open and shut doors. Door, what doors? Of the kingdom. Not, not the earthly kingdom, but the heavenly kingdom. He's talking here really about salvation. In other words, Jesus Christ is the one who sovereignly opens the door of salvation, his kingdom, to people. And he's the one who closes the door. He's the one who is in charge of who's allowed into his kingdom. Now, here's the question. Why Why does Jesus reveal himself as the true God, the Messiah who has authority to allow people into his kingdom and not into his kingdom? Well, verse 9 is, is the key. Verse 9 tells us that there were Jewish people in the city of Philadelphia who persecuted this church. He called them a synagogue of Jews, but they are not. We'll get to that in a moment. But there were Jewish people in this city apparently persecuting this church who believed that these Christians, as often Jewish people do today, they believed that Christians were following a false God, that Jesus was a false God. He was a false Messiah. That's apparently what they were saying to these Christians, what Jewish people say today. And Jesus is simply affirming that he is the true God. He is the true Messiah and the one that this church kept telling the Jewish people to believe in. He's the real deal. So that's the correspondent who's writing this letter. He is Christ, who is holy, who is true. He has kingdom authority to determine who is saved and who is not. It's a great affirmation that Jesus Christ is God and he is the true Messiah. Secondly, we move now to the condition of the church. What, what was the spiritual condition of this church? Verse 8, we start off just this little phrase, which you've seen before, 
I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Jesus begins by, by telling this church that he knows their deeds, but then he stops. Notice in, in almost every other church, I know your deeds, and then he rebukes them. But here, he just stops. I know your deeds. And the reason, apparently, that he stops is because he just approves of their deeds. There's nothing negative about their deeds. So, I know your deeds. I'm aware of what you're doing. And then he says, Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Jesus has given this church, he says, an an open door. Now, what is an open door? According to other New Testament references, when you look these up, an open door speaks of opportunity for ministry. It speaks of opportunity to spread the gospel and minister. In Acts, for example, Acts 14, verse 27, Paul told how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. He opened up opportunities to penetrate the Gentile lands with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 16.9 says, A great door for effective service has been opened to me, Paul said. Just opportunities. 2 Corinthians 2.12 says the same thing. Colossians 4.3, Paul said, Pray for a door for the word. Just an open door, open opportunities. So keep in mind, just as the city of Philadelphia had been established as a missionary enterprise to reach the regions beyond with the Greek culture. So the head of the church, the true God, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, had established a church at Philadelphia to be a missionary enterprise to reach regions beyond with the gospel. That's the thought. He had opened the door for service to them, and he says that no one can shut it. No one can close it apart from him. Now, what does this tell us about opportunities to minister for Christ? It says, if there's an open door that God has given you, then go through it and go through it because Christ has opened it by his sovereign control of all things. And if there's a closed door, you want to minister, but it just keeps closing and closing and closing, then understand that Christ has closed it and no man can open it. No power on earth, though, just by way of encouragement, can close an opportunity and a door that Jesus has opened without his permission. He's the sovereign one. Opportunities to reach out with the gospel are doors opened by our Savior, and our job is simply not to open those doors. That's his job. We're to walk through them. Folks, if the Lord has given you opportunities in your neighborhood, with your friends, with families, others. He's put burdens on your heart to minister. By all means, go through those doors. If there are creative things that you have just floating in your mind and desires to minister, just do it. Because God has put that apparently on your heart and he's opened those doors. We, we live in a day and age of unprecedented open doors of ministry. Take them. Live outside the box. Think and pray. And by all means, go through those doors. Don't be so interested in yourself that you miss these opportunities to walk through those open doors. All around us are open opportunities. But the church at Philadelphia, they were a church that understood if there's an open door, we're going through it. And they were ready and prepared to reach out for Christ. They were ready when these opportunities presented themselves. And I want you to see why Jesus sovereignly gave this church in this city such 
opportunities. It'll tell us why he gives some of us more opportunities than others, why he's using certain churches more than other churches. Notice verse 8. Let's go back again. I put before you, says, an open door which no one can shut. Then notice, because you. Now, that word because tells us that he's about to give the reasons why he has opened up such unusual doors of service for this church. And by way of principles for us, why he opens doors for certain people and not for others. So if you've ever wondered, how come some people I know seem to get more opportunities to serve Christ or some churches I know, here's some insight. He gives three qualifications for why an open door is presented to certain people from ministry. Number one, it says, because you have a little power. That's not a put down. You have a little power. What he means by this is that they were small in number. He doesn't mean that they were a weak church as opposed to a strong church. He means that they didn't have a lot of clout in the community. What we would say today is they're not a mega church of 10,000 people. They haven't had books written about them. They're not really well known. They, they apparently didn't have a whole lot of social prominence. They're just a small group of believers. Probably nobody in the city took them seriously. Nobody really cared. They're a small group of Christians, but they were faithful to the Lord. They were faithful to the Lord, overlooked by the secular world, but faithful to the Lord. But that's why God used them. Listen, here's the key. They understood how weak they were. They understood that their usefulness was because they had a lean on the Lord. They were not a mega church. They didn't have big programs. They didn't have a whole lot of money coming in. They were small, overlooked, and insignificant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're given insight. Let's turn there as to what he's talking about here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Corinthians were told by the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. The Corinthians understood that they were not in society particularly significant people. A church made up of a lot of slaves, a lot of people who were just common laborers, nothing special. Well, the church at Philadelphia was like that. They knew they weren't special. They knew they were just sinners saved by grace. It's the same thing that Paul experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he prayed three times that God would remove the thorn in his flesh. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. My strength will be perfected in weakness. And Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, I'm leaning on the Lord. When I'm strong, I'm leaning on me. Paul said, gladly will I accept all of these infirmities that I might be weak in Christ. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the essence of thought. When we recognize how really weak we are, that we can do nothing of any value spiritually apart from Christ, that's when the Lord uses us. 
And that's when he uses us as a church and as individuals. I hope you will be able to join us again next time for the conclusion of this interesting study. Remember, at any time, you can log on to our website, versebyverseradio.org, to learn more about this program and to listen again to today's lesson or any of the hundreds of other lessons available for free download. You may also call Verse by Verse at 727-239-0306 for any questions you may have about the Bible or to request a CD copy of this message. That number again is 727-239-0306. Our website is www.firstbyverseradio.org. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry. Your faithful prayers and giving enable us to continue bringing these Bible studies on this great station. You can donate online by going to our website, versebyverseradio.org, and clicking on the Giving tab. Or call us at 7. 7-